2: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, the painter of Maine tells a story of a New England that's both real and imaginary.
4: That image of Maine as being this anti-modern place where people still live a simple life is... An image that still plays very strongly, I think, in expectations, viewers' expectations, visitors' expectations.
3: Marsden Hartley's Maine. But first, three stories about new ideas in healthcare. We'll go first to a clinic in Vermont that's working to help treat the mental health issues of the refugee community there, both from past traumas and the stresses of transitioning into a new culture. As VPR's Kathleen Masterson reports, many refugees finally feel safe once they get to the U.S., sometimes after decades of threat of torture or loss of family members. But just because they're removed from harm doesn't mean the pain is over. She visited with a group of Bhutanese refugees who sought out trauma counseling.
5: Ajuda Tapa was forced to flee from her home in Bhutan in the early 1990s. The Bhutanese government drove more than 100,000 people like Tapa out of the country in a push toward ethnic cleansing. Along with others, she ended up in a refugee camp in Nepal, where she lived for 18 years.
2: The camp uh, life is so miserable. You know, it's very difficult to you know, have basic needs also. Uh, not enough to eat, not enough clothes. You know, and then the, the, you know, the food given by the UNHCR or other agencies is not enough to feed the kids. Tapa is speaking
5: through an interpreter. She's on an outing with about 15 other Bhutanese refugees who've settled in Vermont. All of them have been through trauma therapy counseling. So they formed a social group. And their stop today, Lake Champlain Chocolates.
4: This is our one and only factory. So all of the chocolate we make is right here where you can see through the window.
5: Tapa says when she moved to Vermont, she was very depressed and she didn't feel any hope for the future. She had to leave behind her son at the refugee camp for the first year and she'd recently lost her husband he was killed one day while he was out fetching wood in the forest
2: at first my my you know brain is running here and there you know thinking a lot of things and not thinking about the futures and i don't have any hopes at that time my goal is how can i you know relieve from all those and then go move, move forward
6: when we do our treatment we're very sensitive to giving our clients control over their story we realize that they have not asked for their story, that it's been given to them. That's Karen Fondacaro, the director
5: of the Connecting Cultures Clinic, where Tapa sought treatment. She's a professor of psychological science at the University of Vermont and also a co-founder of NEST, New England survivors of torture and trauma. The clinic offers legal, therapeutic, and social work services. She says a technique called narrative exposure therapy helps clients to reprocess their
6: trauma in a safe environment. Where when you're going through the trauma, you don't really have the time to experience the emotions. I always feel like it's the emotions that you deserve to have felt during that time. The way in which we do it is to really let them tell us when they're ready and let them tell the story. Fonda Caro says most do choose to share.
5: And she's been surprised by how many have found relief after releasing their stories, either in a private session or a group setting. She says research supports this method. But, she says, for
6: many, the trauma isn't over when they come to the United States. We don't even call it POST anymore because it it really can be ongoing. I've worked with individuals where we'll be talking about what happened during the war, and they'll get a phone call that night that someone has been harmed in their home country. So it's not POST. Part of the therapy involves teaching breathing techniques to help people deal with anxiety and to reduce
5: flashbacks and nightmares. And being in a new country, there are added stresses. Pablo Bose is a geography researcher with the University of Vermont who studies refugee resettlement.
7: So you're making adjustments often to a new language, new sets of expectations, dealing with like very, very different relationships with your kids in schools and, and the new friends they're developing, new attitudes they have. So all of these kinds of things make the actual adjustment period very, very stressful in many cases.
5: Back at the clinic, Fonda Caro says they've seen individuals from over 29 countries, and now have a waiting list for those seeking therapy. She says the clinic was preparing for the arrival of Syrian refugees in Vermont, but that resettlement was stalled by federal orders. And Fondacaro says she's learned a good deal working with refugee clients, too. For one, in the past, she'd heard other therapists talk about sometimes dancing with clients. And the academic
6: in her cringed. But now she sees the importance of finding joy. And if you can see joy on faces of individuals who've come in and lost babies and they're dancing with you, that is what we now call behavioral activation of one of our best techniques for depression.
5: (laughs) And that's what these social groups of therapy graduates are all about, finding joy in daily life. Judah Tapa says the support group has helped her break through the isolation and depression she felt when she first arrived.
2: Yeah, it helps a lot, you know, in the group, and I'm comfortable sharing and then socializing with the group.
5: Now her life is a mix of Bhutanese traditions and foods from home and learning English and Vermont culture. At the group outing to Lake Champlain Chocolates, she tried chocolate for the first time.
3: That's Kathleen Masterson reporting. As we heard in that story, caregivers are pushing back against terminology that they think minimizes an illness or condition. That means the term post-traumatic is out in favor of language that acknowledges the ongoing nature of the trauma. Emily Corwin found a similar story in New Hampshire, where many on the front lines of the opioid epidemic are coming to see addiction as a medical disorder. And some, including Nashua New Hampshire's Public Health Department, are trying to get people to use language that reflects that. As Emily found, habits, though, can be hard to break.
2: I'm sitting among 30 or 40 residents of Nashua in the Public Library Auditorium. We're here to learn how to save someone from an overdose by administering the reversal drug Narcan. It's like a CPR class for the 21st century. We're a captive audience, and before the training starts, we get a kind of lecture.
0: We need to start talking about substance use disorder, like the disease that it is.
2: Allie McKnight is here with the Public Health Department. She's been giving this talk a lot lately.
0: I'm asking all of you right now to retire the following words, addict, junkie and alcoholic.
2: The idea is to encourage society to see addiction as a disease and to stop labeling its victims as moral failures. Eric Eastman is sitting in the audience. He says the rising opioid death toll here has left him with a sense of obligation to help. But still.
3: The idea that we have to replace a whole set of vernacular with a whole new set overnight, I, I, I think that's some heavy lifting there. but. But I I get where they're going with it, and I think it's constructive.
2: In fact, the initial push to change the language around addiction was specifically geared toward federal agencies and medical practitioners. Obama White House drug czar Michael Botticelli was behind it. He says the recommendations were based on research.
1: That even among trained clinicians, when you call someone a substance abuser, they're more likely to treat that uh, person punitively.
2: Botticelli is talking about a study from Mass General Hospital. It compares two sets of mental health providers. One received a survey referring to patients as substance abusers. The other got the same survey, except it referred to people, quote, with substance use disorder. The health providers, it turned out, were more likely to recommend things like jail time to the, quote, abusers, and more likely to recommend medical treatment to the people with a, quote, disorder. Different labels led to different outcomes. But what about that old tenet of recovery, that you have to own your addiction with statements like this?
6: Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm an addict in recovery.
2: This is how Sarah Longval says she likes to introduce herself at recovery group meetings. I met with her and two other women at an addiction recovery center in Concord. Another woman named Don Dawn Grossa explains coming to terms with the phrase, I am an addict, helped her seek help.
0: That denial can last for a really long time. It's when that light bulb goes on that you go, I am an addict and I have like a serious problem. Um, a lot of people have to hit rock bottom before they come to those terms.
2: Everyone I talked to made it clear that people in recovery should use whatever words they choose to describe themselves. Still, it seemed to me that this phrase, I am an addict, had actual utility for some people at the recovery center. I put this to Michael Botticelli from the Obama administration.
1: I've been a member of a 12-step group uh, organization for a long time.
2: The former drug czar who got this effort underway, he's in recovery, too. He says that whole I am an addict admission, it's useful, but only when the medical community has fallen down on their job.
1: We can do a better job at intervening with people before they have to hit rock bottom.
2: His point is doctors don't wait for someone with heart disease to have a heart attack before they prescribe statins. And they wouldn't wait for a diabetes patient to confess I am a diabetic before prescribing insulin. So he says, why do that with people who have substance use disorder? It's a question for medical professionals and perhaps for the rest of us, too.
3: That's Emily Corwin of NHPR reporting. Our final health care story is about politics, namely when political views about health care run into one's personal realities. The Republican plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act stalled out in Washington in part because of predictions that up to 24 million people could lose their health insurance. That would include many people who voted for Donald Trump. Karen Brown of New England Public Radio caught up with a high-profile skeptic of Obamacare who has changed his tune.
0: About eight years ago, Gary Cloutier was poised to become the national face of blue-collar resistance to Obamacare. Some called him the Joe the Plumber of health reform. It all started when I interviewed him for a story on Massachusetts health reform, which was a model for the federal law. At the time, Cloutier, who owns an auto body shop in Westfield, Massachusetts, was angry he didn't qualify for the state's subsidized care. He was also against the requirement that everyone get insurance. Here's what he told me in 2009. You're forcing something down my throat, and then you're penalizing me because I can't afford it. Cloutier's comment on NPR reached the ears of a producer at ABC who invited him to a town hall-style meeting with President Barack Obama. Tonight,
8: from the White House, a special edition of Primetime.
0: Cloutier keeps a DVD of that national TV appearance on his desk and recently played it for me, starting with Diane Sawyer's introduction. Gary Cloutier, who is a body shop owner,
7: yeah, body shop owner from Westfield, Massachusetts, Clute's Auto Body. Got to give myself a plug. There you go.
0: Clutier, a registered independent, told the president he was worried about the Obamacare penalty for not being insured.
7: What are you going to do for people like me so that we don't fall through the cracks?
0: Obama went on to assure Clutier that the health exchanges would eventually bring down the cost so small business owners like him could afford insurance. For you to be part of this exchange, this marketplace, along with millions of others, suddenly you've got a little bit of market clout. That was about the end of Cloutier's 15 Minutes of Fame. Shortly after his TV appearance, the pop star Michael Jackson died and the news cycle was over. Cloutier went back home to figure out how to get health insurance. Obamacare passed and Massachusetts expanded its subsidized health plans.
7: You know, in the end, I have insurance now. I have health insurance now. It took me a while to get it.
0: He had to apply three times, but today Cloutier is a devoted convert to health reform, both Massachusetts version and Obamacare. He pays a comfortable $150 a month, thanks to subsidies from the Massachusetts Health Connector. He says he uses his Tufts insurance card regularly.
7: I was able to get a physical for the first time in not know how long. I uh, was able to get a colonoscopy.
0: He also went to a sleep clinic where he was prescribed a breathing machine for sleep apnea, which explained why he was always so tired.
7: Who knows what could have happened? I could have fallen asleep and had an accident, killed someone, killed myself. You know, I mean, maybe I'm being a little dramatic here, but that possibility is there, and I didn't know I had it until I was diagnosed with it. You know, and that was all because I have health insurance now.
0: He knows the current system is not perfect. In the last year, some major insurers have pulled out of the federal health exchanges, and states, including Massachusetts and Connecticut, have warned that some premiums are going up. But Cloutier says it's a lot better than it used to be.
7: So here I'm thinking, great, I got insurance, and now the Republicans come into office, and now you want to yank the rug right out from underneath me?
0: He says he is still financially strapped, making less than $40,000 a year. And you can see the pressure he's under to keep costs low, like when he tells one of his employees to go faster on the job.
7: Where's your uh, electric uh, ration?
0: Time is money. Cloutier knows that in some ways he represents a demographic Trump might assume would be on his side.
7: Yeah, I'm the the blue-collar worker. I'm fed up with the government, you know, doing what they do and how they don't really care about us. But I'm not a moron either.
0: On the ballot last November, he wrote in Bernie Sanders rather than vote for Trump or Clinton. But next election, after watching White House attempts to roll back health reform, he's willing to vote strategically to make sure Trump doesn't win again.
3: That's Karen Brown reporting. Coming up, art that defined the rocky coast, the looming hills, and the working men of Maine. It's next. <laughs> Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. In the permanent collection of the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the nation's oldest art museum in downtown Hartford, Connecticut, is a painting by Marsden Hartley that stops me in my tracks every time I see it. Three colorful figures who are standing on a pier Massive strapping working men with comically broad shoulders, down east young blades, pictured with the images of their trade, lobsters, fish, and logs. With that painting in mind, I wasn't surprised to learn recently that Bruce Springsteen, the poet of working class America, is one of Hartley's biggest admirers and collectors. But Hartley's career, stretching from the early years of the 20th century to his death in the 1940s, also celebrated the vast and wild scenery of New England, specifically his home state of Maine. The exhibition Marsden Hartley's Maine is at the Met Breuer in New York until June, when it moves to the Colby College Museum of Art in Maine. I talked with Donna Cassidy, professor of art and American and New England studies at the University of Southern Maine, who's co-authored the exhibition book about the artist's relationship with this place. Donna Cassidy, welcome to NEXT.
4: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
3: Can we talk for a moment about Hartley's early life uh, in Maine, in part, and how it helped to form him, the, the years that he spent mostly in Maine growing up?
4: Yeah, he was born in Lewiston, Maine, which, for those of you that don't know, is a, a old textile manufacturing town, like so many other towns in New England, right? And Hartley's parents, who were English immigrants, came to Lewiston to work in the mills. Uh, his father, in particular, had a job uh, in, in one of the textile mills, although he really struggled in keeping a job in the mills. And Hartley was born in Lewiston to a growing and large family. I think he was actually the the, the last son, uh, the last and only surviving son, really, to be born. And they lived a kind of hard scrabble life, uh, as so many immigrants did. And when Hartley was eight years old, he his mother died. And this was a, an event that he would identify over and over again in his life as being so monumental to him, so profoundly affecting to him, and that he really said that, you know, it was at this moment that he, his life as a lonely person had begun, and that sense of loss that he felt at his mother's death when he was age eight was something that really shaped his identity, and I think also really shaped his attitude towards Maine. I mean, he certainly was someone who had a love-hate relationship with Maine, and this moment of his mother's death can, can certainly be identified as that moment that initial moment when he began to have these very uncomfortable feelings about home, about family, about about Maine. And it was after the family, after his mother died, the family actually began to break up. I mean, he joins his father and his stepmother, who had moved to Cleveland. And that was, um, you know, that was the moment when Hartley kind of exits Maine for the first time. And spends his kind of early artistic life actually in Cleveland, studying with some landscape painters there, eventually getting support from a patron to study in New York. And that, that eventually brings him back to Maine.
3: How do you see this love-hate relationship with Maine showing up in the paintings themselves? Maybe you can describe a, a work that might illustrate for us what you see as that love and hate relationship.
4: Well, I think if you if we particularly focus on some of his early landscape paintings that comes across, I think, very dramatically, his early landscapes of of Maine focus on the western mountains. Uh, he painted at that time and around Lovell, Maine and in Stoneham, Maine as well. And he painted paintings that had these very high mountains that really fill the picture plane. And the, the, the mountains just really rise up and dwarf anything below. And those mountain landscapes are uh, – he created those mountain landscapes in two different kinds of vocabularies, one of which was very – post-impressionist. And a painting that he did, which is in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, called Carnival at, Carnival Autumn that he did in 1908, is just brilliantly painted. It has vivid reds and yellows and purples. And the colors are purely applied to the canvas. And they just jump out at you and create a, a vivid luminosity. This—it's an image of, of fall, really, but it's all of those you know vivid colors of a, a New England fall that just light up the canvas. And it's a painting that's really ebullient and uplifting and filled with light. And uh, the next year, Hartley's painting a dark main uh, painting—a painting by him called the dark. Mountain is a great example where that large mountain that fills the canvas isn't filled anymore with vivid reds and yellows and violets, but it's it's almost like a black curtain that has just fallen down into the landscape, and it, at the base of the mountain are these craggy, bare trees that create this image of desolation, and along with that are these deserted farm farmhouses that, again, add to that sense of desolation and loss and um, a New England and a Maine that was really on the decline. And so, you know, those two works, the Carnival of Autumn and the Dark Mountain, I think are great examples of that those oppositional qualities that we see in Hartley's view of Maine his construction of Maine his invention of Maine and New England by by association that it is both a place of of light and a place of of darkness
3: I'm looking right now at at the dark mountain as reproduced in in the book and it has this feeling of claustrophobia that you don't usually associate with a with a broad landscape but because of as you say, this dark curtain of a mountain that looms over these tiny buildings, it really does feel as though you're you're trapped someplace that you might not get out of.
4: Absolutely. And this, this image of the dark New England is an image that he carried with him throughout his career. When he was in Paris in 1924, he was invited to be uh, part of an exhibition of American artists at Um, one of the galleries in Paris during this time. And he chose to paint two landscapes of Maine. And these were landscapes that were um, very much like those early dark mountain landscapes. And we see the same kind of vocabulary, that high black dark mountain, these bare landscape forms, the, uh, the, the, the um, deserted farmhouses in the bottom. So he's remembering this Maine when he's painting in Paris in 19, 1924 at a moment when he was being encouraged to return to Maine by by critic Paul R- Rosenfeld, who wrote in a, a a book called The Port of New York uh, in nineteen twenty four that Hartley to really regain his true self had to come back to Maine at the same time Hartley had had requested some photographs from his patron Alfred Stieglitz and among the photographs that Stieglitz sent were photographs of these early early dark landscapes so here we have you know Hartley in Paris painting these dark landscapes and then you know jump ahead to Hartley's late period in Maine from 1937 to 43 and we find him again painting seascapes that are nocturnal seascapes, uh, uh, one work called Off the Banks at Night. And it's dark and, and gloomy and haunting, and just, you know, filled with a kind of ominous quality of death. And as you say, ca- claustrophobia. And in that particular landscape, you even have these kind of jagged rocks in the foreground that look as look as though they're, they're getting ready to, you know, to attack the viewer. <laughs>
3: but yeah. I'm wondering about that connection, though, with Maine and the people of Maine, a place that is known as vacation land, a place that obviously the people who live there, have a great pride in, but that people visit because of the beautiful scenery that in part he made famous. I, it feels as though there's a little bit of a tension between the way he saw these beautiful landscapes uh, and the way a picture postcard might want to show Maine.
4: His his works are definitely not the picture postcard Maine. And he, In his late career, he writes, uh, I think it was to his niece that he was not a book of the month club club <laughs> painter, and, which is I think really really quite telling. At the same time, the imagery that he's painting is is definitely the imagery that populated uh, post picture postcards and the tourist literature of the time. And and I think you know Hartley's work, uh, even his early paintings of the Western Maine mountains were done at a time when those sections of Maine were becoming more and more available for tourism. So he's very aware of of, tour, of tourism in Maine and, and writes about vacation land sending shiver, shivers up and down his spine um, that he was so kind of repelled by the commercial aspect. But he was certainly taking advantage of that commercial aspect as well. So he paints, you know, waves crashing against the shore he paints uh, the congregational churches. He paints lobsters. There's a wonderful still life in the book and in the exhibition that this this brightly uh, brightly painted uh, red lobster, just you know, ready to be eaten, you know, boi- freshly boiled, live, you know, looking almost like uh, a kind of you know advertisement for for Maine that you know again becomes known. As vacation land, around the same time, Hartley's painting these late these late works like like Lobster on Blackboard, and he paints the um, it's a wonderful painting of the lighthouse. Uh, again, a kind of image that populated uh, the postcards of the area. In fact, Hartley had a postcard of Portland Headlight, and paints a painting called The Lighthouse that is based on on Portland Headlight, but it's it's so unlike. When you start looking closely at it, it's so unlike that picture postcard. The in the picture postcard in the postcard, you have a very uh, stable vertical uh, tower that is the that is the headlight that's you know ready to help people you know help boats ashore. <laughs> In Hartley's rendition, we have you know ferocious waves crashing against the against the lighthouse and against the shore in front of the lighthouse, the boulders in front of the lighthouse, and the lighthouse itself seems to kind of tilt a little bit but <laughs> off almost, center.
3: But almost as though the way that you would see it if approaching by boat on a on a rocky uh, day, where it wouldn't the exactly. landscape would be tilting side to side, so it does look like you are at sea on an ominous day.
4: It, exactly, you have a very different kind of of point of view than um, than is being offered by by the tourist literature during the during this particular time period. So, I mean, I think Hart, I think there's again this kind of duality in Hart, in Hartley's work. He's he's drawing from these popular image, the popular imagery of the time, but remaking this using, of course, modernist visual language, expressionist style, or very rough. In, in his late works, very rough and rugged uh, style in which you know figures are distorted, human bodies are distorted. And again yet he's you know really playing on on stereotypes of the region. One of the great figure paintings in the show is Canuck Yankee Lumberjack at Old Orchard Beach, Maine. And he also is of course you know playing on other types the in his early drawings of the people of Maine. He paints the old maid, um, again, a a stereotypical figure in New England literature and art at the turn of the century. Uh, In his late figure paintings, he focuses on the fisher folk and the fishermen and, and presents them in very masculine rough images. Um, and he paints hunters. And again, this is the time in LL you know, Bean is, you know, making its name um, and and painting on presenting paintings on it, the cover of it, their catalogs that show these again, rough and rugged, uh, manly men of Maine who, you know, hunt, who fish, who are very physical. And so, you know, Hartley's again drawing from this common uh, lexicon of, of icons of Maine, but transforming them and making them his own. And I think this is certainly where, um, you know, his vision comes in. That's why this, this exhibition, I think, is so stunning, because people kind of see the familiar, but then see, as they look more closely, see that familiarity dissolve and disappear and see much more that, that Hartley is presenting.
3: You you talked earlier about uh, regionalism and the idea of creating a type of uh, New England style. I, I'm wondering how you feel Marsden Hartley influenced how we view what New England is today.
4: Well, I think that you know his his vision of New England, his vision of Maine, is one that so many. Outsiders, so many tourists uh, expect to see when they come here. Um, that sense too of you know of the you know the waves crashing in against the shore. I mean, he's really continuing that vision that was begun by Winslow Homer, right in the in the late part of the 19th century. He he continues, kind of reinvents that and creates that kind of expectation of what we would see. And he certainly in his presentation of the of the types of people, um, the fisher folk. I mean, I think, you know, the type of New England that he presents, by and large, is what, what I would call an anti-modern vision of Maine. We don't see any of the Lewiston mills. You know, we don't see any industry. I mean, there is an allusion to that, certainly in some of his logging paintings. But those logging paintings also can be so easily read as just images of nature, you know, and so there's this absence of of modernity—the you know telephone lines or uh, pre- he comes to Portland, but he doesn't paint the city of Portland. He paints the headlight. He paints the area outside the city and and Old Orchard Beach. So that image of of Maine and Maine especially as being this anti-modern place where. Um, people still live a simple life is an image that it still plays very strongly I think in expectations, viewers' expectations, visitors' expectations. and even I think to a certain degree for us who live here, um, we certainly value those those same quali- those same qualities as well.
3: Donna Cassidy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
4: Well, thank you very much.
3: The exhibition Marsden Hartley's Maine is at the Met Breuer in New York until June, when it moves to the Colby College Museum of Art. If you'd like to see some pictures of his work, just go to our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a forgotten veteran of a forgotten war finally gets his due. It's next. part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. Angelica Marino Monge was only 10 years old when she, her mother, and her older brother fled El Salvador. She lived here in the United States illegally until recently when the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA Act, was passed enabling her to become authorized to work and stay in the U.S. She's putting herself through college and is now president of the Latino International Students Association at Holyoke Community College. She told her story to the Words in Transit Project at New England Public Radio.
9: We left because of the gangs in El Salvador. Also because my mom is a single mother. She couldn't raise three kids on her own. She had two businesses in El Salvador, um, but it wasn't enough to raise us. So she decided to come here. Her sister let her borrow the money. The day we left, the whole family got together. My grandmother was there, my aunt was there, my cousins, pretty much you know, the close family members were there. And my mom just decided to bring my older brother and I and leave my little brother behind because at the time he was four years old, so he was too young for, um, to travel. I was 10, my brother was 11. My mom couldn't tell my little brother that we were coming here. She told him that he was gonna go on vacation with my grandmother for a few days, for a few weeks, and I didn't see him for nine years after that. We had an arrangement with a coyote, which is a person that brings you here, like a smuggler. Um, and my mom had to pay a lot of money for that. And we know it was risky, of course, cause we know we could die on the way here. We were going to cross the desert, my mom, my brother, and I alone, because once you reach the Mexico and the U.S. border, the um, the person that brings you just leaves you on the other side. He stays in Mexico, and then you have to figure out your way here from there. We walked for hours, We got here, and then we tried to check in into a hotel, but they told us that we couldn't because we didn't have any papers. So we had to go back and get caught by immigration. And when we were going back, it was really dark. It was really cold, and you can hear animals. So, of course, my brother and I were just crying. My mom didn't know what to do. And then when we were just sitting, there was an immigration truck, and they found us, so they took us in. And they processed us, and one of the um, immigration officers told my mom that she was stupid for risking our lives, you know, to bring us here. My mom couldn't stop crying. We were separated from her, but we can still hear everything that they were telling her. And then they asked us questions like, is she really your mom? Why are you here? Why are you with her? Those are questions that when you're 10 or 11, they're shocking. You no, know, when someone tells you that, maybe she's not really your mom. How can they do that to you? And they kept us in a room for a few hours, in a really cold room, and then they let us go. Back then, they would let you stay for a year, and then you had the choice whether to go to the court or not. And my mom was afraid that if we went to court to plead our case we'll get deported so we never went i didn't want to go to school i was i was depressed i cried you know my mom tried to tell me that it was what we but my other brother and i were here for she was here to work but we were here for an education and i i didn't i didn't want to go to school i mean kids can be cruel sometimes because we didn't speak english Someone would try to talk to me. I had no idea what they were saying, you know. So they were like, oh, you don't talk, you know. Just kids. When I came here in high school, I also struggled. I didn't didn't want to do presentations in my other classes. I didn't want to read out loud because I knew I couldn't. Or my accent, you know, is really thick, but it was worse back then. So even though they're more accepting, you still feel that you're not you're not a part of it. And even though I was more open in this high school, I still feel isolated from everyone else. I couldn't take regular classes like other kids took. And I couldn't take any sports because my mom didn't have any money for that. So I was going to school, going home, and I worked. That was when the problem started because I knew I wasn't legal. I knew I couldn't work like everyone else. So I kind of started getting angry because even though I was treated normal as a kid, I wasn't while I was getting into my adult years. I couldn't do what everyone else could do. I couldn't get a driver's license at 16. I couldn't vote. I couldn't get a job, or at least a good job. So that's when my mom you know, explained to us that we were not like everyone else, that we were illegal, and the only way I could work was through getting fake papers. And I got them, and I worked as a dishwasher for a while. I worked about 45 hours a week, and that's when my mom left. I thought I had the support to go to college. At least I wouldn't have to pay for rent, so I knew that I was only working towards going to college, towards paying my tuition. But my mom decided to leave because she just, she couldn't, she couldn't do it anymore. Not here. At 18, you know, you're only a kid. I had to find out how to do everything for my own. And once Obama approved the DACA Act, I went back to school. And I was an in-state tuition student. And I I can get a driver's license, um, but I cannot vote. And I cannot get loans. And that's... In only 18 states, not all states have approved it. Other states, you can only work. So Massachusetts was one of the states that did approve it, which I'm thankful for. Um, I don't feel like I'm I'm an outsider anymore, but I am. (laughs) And it's, you know, and people just see me as someone else, but they don't know my story. They don't know who I am. They suppose that I am just like them because I carry conversations like them, and I go to school every day, and I'm like them, but I'm not. So I think I feel I feel American. I feel like I am from here, just without the documents to prove it.
3: That's Angelica marino Monge, telling her immigration story for the Words in Transit Project at New England Public Radio. In collaboration with Amherst College, You can find a link to more immigrant stories from the project at nextnewengland.org. Finally, a story about recognition, a long time coming. Portland, Maine is remembering a long-forgotten African-American man who served and was injured in one of the nation's earliest wars. It's a saga that started more than two centuries ago, and as Fred Bever explains, it's a story of justice twice denied, or at
1: least delayed. William Brown was likely born a slave in Maryland, but he later settled in Maine, then a part of Massachusetts. In 1799, when Brown was barely an adolescent, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy and he played a role in its first major victory. It started with a hot trade dispute with France that became known as the Quasi War. The Quasi War broke into
8: an outright shooting war at sea in the early days of February 1799 when the USS Constellation met the French frigate El
1: Insurgente off of St. Kitts and Nevins Islands. Herb Adams, a Portland native steeped in Maine and U.S. history, says William Brown served in that battle as what was then called a powder monkey, or as Adams says. A powder boy, that is uh, he being small, would race barefoot
8: from below decks up to deck to the men fighting the guns during battle with leather buckets full of black gunpowder and had to keep this uh, routine up, down, up, down as long as the battle lasted.
1: And it lasted, Adams says, about an hour and a quarter. Before the French frigate uh, pulled down its flag and,
8: uh, and lost its mass in disarray and surrendered to the Americans. It made Captain Thomas Truxton of the Constellation an instant and enormous
1: American hero. But it forever scarred William Brown as a shipmate
0: would later attest. In the engagement, said Brown was wounded in consequence of the discharge of a musket in the top of the enemy's vessel, entering the foot near the ankle and breaking
1: the bones of the foot. That testimony was submitted to Congress some four decades after the battle in an effort to help the now-infirm Brown win recognition of his service and a military pension. The archives show that a number of Mainers would join Brown's petitions, Other shipmates, doctors and surgeons who swore to Brown's long-term disability, pension agents, and big-shot Portland lawyers, including then-Senator Hannibal Hamlin, later Abraham Lincoln's vice president, who wrote of his good character and truthfulness. It was his service that was in question and not
8: his color. Uh, But frustrating as it was for him, this man lived and limped all his life, working as a sea cook. Uh, On the ocean and on land, he was a cartman, that is, he'd haul things from A to B, never able really to walk well, and regaling children in Portland about his stories of life at sea because the Congress wouldn't listen to him.
1: Brown hit some major roadblocks. He was told that because the Quasi-War was never officially declared, no pensions would be offered for service before 1800, or his name didn't appear in military records, or papers were lost. Letters unreturned. Congress adjourned before acting. More than a decade passed between Brown's first attempt to get a pension and the day it was won. And eventually, in 1854, in
8: August, he was granted a pension of $96 a year by the United States Congress. Unfortunately, he had died in May 1854. His
1: pension arrived after he had died. And Brown's story might have ended here, where he was buried, in Portland's Old Eastern Cemetery. But for the past several years, Herb Adams and a handful of like-minded Portlanders have made it their business to identify African American citizens who were interred anonymously in this quiet five-acre swath of grass and gravestones overlooking the sea. They have focused on those who served in America's early wars. They could not, if they were a soldier,
8: be buried beside a white man they had fought beside. Such were the days. And therefore, this area tends to be fairly open because, of course, they,
1: uh, as a rule, as a general rule, could not have afforded stones. Four years ago, a Maine historian named Larry Glatz chanced upon the National Archives' trove of quasi-war documents misfiled under the War of 1812. He notified Adams of William Brown's story And the two sleuthed their way to an application to the federal and state governments for a veteran's headstone. As with Brown's original pension request, this one too was a stop and go affair. Government then, government now, you know, there's paperwork, there's bureaucracy. Larry Glatz was dogged though, once again offering proofs of Brown's service to the authorities, making repeat requests, following up, making calls, answering questions. And finally, late last month, they got the news the Veterans Administration had dropped off a new headstone for William Brown at a city garage. It's made of white Vermont marble, about waist high and narrow like the headstones at Arlington National Cemetery. The stone uh, is inscribed very simply. That's Larry Glatz, who was on hand as the inscribed piece was unwrapped at the garage. William Brown, USS Constellation, 1786, 1854. It's nice to see USS Constellation, that's great. Although, it, is. it would be nice to have a date, you know... Well, we can see... Quasi-war quasi quasi war. with France, you know.
8: Quasi-war. Yeah. It's a
1: quasi-stone until quasi then. Stone. Uh, Sometime this spring, the headstone will be set over the section of the Old City Cemetery, where, for more than 150 years, William Brown's grave has gone unmarked.
8: He fought for a country that didn't recognize him appropriately in the short life that he had, and he is still one of us, and we owe him this.
3: The sons of France, our seas invade, destroy our commerce and our trade. This time the reckoning should be paid
0: to brave brave Yankee Yankee boys. On board the Constellation...
1: For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine.
3: Our ship she mounted 40 guns And on the main so swiftly runs To prove to France, Columbia's sons Our brave Yankee boys We
9: sailed to the West Indies
3: Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Maraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brantham. Production helped this week from John Keimel, John Vosey, Sam Hudzik, and Ali Oshinsky. Who produced our segment on Marsden Heartland. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at ToddMerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.